Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Last week... We had iFixit CEO Kyle Weens here to discuss what was happening with the 1201 triennial review process, and it was an interesting and very specific discussion. So we invited him back again this week for a somewhat more general discussion on a related topic. The idea of a freedom to tinker or for permissionless innovation is important to many of us. I can point to plenty of examples of innovation that happened because people were allowed to solve their own problems and build on and improve technology that they owned. However, there are still many people who don't think that this is really that big of a deal. All too frequently, I'll hear people say, well, just ask for permission. What's the big deal? Or alternatively, argue that the original product maker somehow should retain absolute control over how their product is used or even uh, how it's being treated after it's been sold. To me, there are two major issues with this viewpoint. The first is that it totally fails to understand just how much innovation you lose when you first have to ask for permission, even if that permission is granted. Just the very process of having to ask permission can create a real chilling effect on innovation. The second problem is in this idea that even after someone has bought something that they don't actually own the product that they bought, and rather that the original creator retains some sort of moral right or other right over the product that they sold. This seems completely backwards to me. However, For me personally, much of this debate is somewhat theoretical or only indirectly relevant, which is why I wanted to bring Kyle back again to discuss why the freedom to tinker really is so important. So, Kyle, do you have any good sort of general thoughts on on why the freedom to tinker is such a necessary part of, of innovation culture today? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it's important that we be able to modify our things. Uh, everything from the basic uh, situation where you have something that's broken and you want to be able to repair it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a situation during Hurricane Katrina where uh, someone was stranded. This was a paraplegic on the top floor of a building, and his ventilator, uh, was the battery was going to die in it, and there was no power. And he had to rewire, the, or his friend had to rewire his ventilator to be able to hook it into an aftermarket battery. So this is like an emergency on-the-fly repair. There's no go back and contact Medtronic and find out what the <laughs> right. authorized repair procedure is. You have to be able to modify the equipment you know, as needed. We have people in Africa and all kinds of crazy situations where they're modifying electronic equipment in ways the manufacturer never expected or intended, and that's, that's okay. Uh, to me, as someone who makes things and puts them out there, the, the best sign that I did a good job is that it's a platform that other people can build on and tinker. Uh, And the moment that you start putting controls on things, you say, no, it's not a platform, it's a product. And even worse than a product, it's a product that you're going to use one way, in a very specific way, uh, and that's it. And so, I mean, one of the counters to that, certainly, um, is going to be like, you know, there's always this sort of liability question, which is, okay, well, if you're taking a product and using it for other purposes, what if it, you know, spins out of control and cuts off someone's head or something like that? 
Right. Uh, and that, that's that's always going to be a concern. And we just have to kind of rely on traditional legal principles where, hey, yes, you can sell a mirror. And yes, somebody can smash the mirror and then use it as a knife. This absolutely is something that they could do. But that's not the mirror manufacturer's responsibility. Uh, and I think that it's it's very straightforward to solve some of these liability issues for manufacturers. Uh, you, we have cell phone companies that are saying people shouldn't be able to replace the battery in their cell phone because it might hurt them. But at the same time, you have car manufacturers that sell cars that include a tire iron that allow you to replace the tire on a car. Right. Uh, and that's far more dangerous to replace the tire on a car on the side of a freeway than it ever is to re replace the battery on a cell phone, which I've never heard of anybody ever getting hurt repairing a cell phone. I think the the safety argument is always like this red herring thing, which which is like it's 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 the one that maybe resonates the most with people that actually don't know what they're talking about. But in terms of <laughs> yeah. like sort of concerns, it's not really a legitimate one. But if you want to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because otherwise everyone else at this table is going to be so pro. <laughs> <laughs> but so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So here here's here. Let's make the argument that the real reason to have those um, those lockdowns is because you want to give a particular manufacturer an incentive to build something and sell it for under the cost of goods, right? Like that happens, in, for example, in, ga in game consoles, right? And to some extent, with unlockable phones, that may even happen uh, with, uh, with phones too, right? You might actually be able to get the phone for cheaper. Right, because, track because, phone does this. Exactly, because they, because they know they're locking you uh, through some hardware uh, to a particular uh, telecom. And if they couldn't do that, you could just take that phone that you bought, buy for under market and go use it with another telecom, right? So, right. so, so, there's, a, so there's that argument. So what do you say to that? Yeah, so, so that's reasonable. And track phones, certainly, they'll make a phone, they'll sell it at Seven uh, Eleven for $10. The phone costs them $15 to make, and they figure they're going to make it up by selling, selling minutes, uh, you know, prepaid minutes on, onto the phone. So sure, that's a business model. Uh, we have to decide is copyright law the, the way that we want to enforce that, or, or how do we want to enable, you know, should we be providing legal protections to these business models, or should we just allow the free market to work? I would argue from an economic perspective, open ecosystems, open innovation always trumps uh, a, a controlled ecosystem. Uh, we saw this with Keurig, with the uh, with the Keurig machines, uh, the Keurig 2.0. They they tried to use a special ink where you could only buy Keurig coffee cups, mm -hmm. uh, and and the market rebelled, and they found you know, a thousand ways around this uh, because people want to be able to modify and tinker with things. So I think I think over the long run for manufacturers, it's going to be a very bad thing for them to create these closed ecosystems. Uh, Keurig certainly did an about face and said, "Whoa, that was maybe the biggest mistake we ever made trying to lock down the 2.0 machines." Well, I, I don't know if that really is a counterexample to that. I think the real counterexample would be: is someone else making a Keurig-like machine that works with generic cups? That would because that would indicate that you don't need the incentive of the monopoly of the supply of the cups in order to be incented to sell the machine. So is there something like a Keurig that's like open source or Are there or alternative? Open? I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot of these Keurig compatible machines. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, so like, isn't it, shouldn't it be, shouldn't you be allowed to try like a closed business model? Like if, if I'm Keurig and I want, and I want to be able to do it, like that, that seems okay if I, if I want to basically be open about the fact that and then just I am, and then just let the market decide that they don't want to accept that is that yeah. that's your argument right that's, so that's a very Richard Epstein argument he basically <laughs> you know one method Epstein who's a law and economics professor he said companies should be able to make any kind of a contract yeah. with their customers right. and they said contract 
would be the method that you would bind the customer to that obligation not to use that machine with some other cup yeah, and, and not copyright law. And well, and that's but, yeah, and that's my question. Like, why why does TrackPhone need copyright law to do that? Right? right. They should just be able to do it on a contract basis. And I I don't necessarily see anything wrong with them doing it on a contract basis as long as it's clearly stated up front. Like, you are buying this phone at below cost, and part of the yeah. deal for doing that is that, you know, you're you can't then take this phone and and use it somewhere else. Is that that, that well, I think there can be a technological measure that, that locks it down. It doesn't need to be legal. Uh-huh. What, why but why does society what, I mean, have to step in and protect that business model? But what you know? What but then what do you do if someone gets around the technological measure? Is that okay? I think that's okay. Yeah. Right. But I guess what what I'm saying is that if I make an agreement with you that says, "Hey, please don't." You know, you please don't place this phone on tables for some reason. Like that's a silly, silly designation. But you agree to it, um, then you, that's. I mean, that that's what what Hirsch is calling yeah. a contract, right? I'm not a lawyer, so yeah. um, <laughs> that seems like an agreement that I agreed to. And then if I kind of go against the contract that I agreed to, that seems bad. Right. So, I, and well, I think Kyle is saying there there are two approaches here to right. that. One is you could do technological, and one is that you could do a contract. And, and but the are, technological those, one seems. Someone's going to break it eventually. Right, right. right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. if you don't want me to do something, just ask me not to do it, and I won't do well, it. Well, let, let me give you the counter-argument to that, Dennis, right? Let's imagine a world where that's actually possible, right? Where people sure. are, are building these contracts, and they're actually enforceable, right? Now, here's the problem. If, if that really works, then everyone from John Deere to Ford to everyone's going to only sell products under these contracts. You might not have a market for the uncontracted. But that's saying that the, that the customer is only... Is it's not going to accept it, right? So it's kind of like, you know, you ha you have a lawn, right? Mm -hmm. I can put a sign up that says, "Please stay off my lawn," or you can put a fence around it. And if you put a fence around it, you're saying that if I get over that fence, it's okay. That you know, that fence wasn't meant for me because I was able to get over it. Um, there's no sign that says, "Please don't walk." <laughs> please like stay off the grass. We're stretching right? this analogy. No, but that's kind of, that's kind of <laughs> no, what no, that but this is, is different. right? No, that's so what, what a technological yeah, like. But that was convention thing. My, you know. my point is, you go to the neighborhood, and every single lawn says has a has a has a, a sign right, right. has a yeah. sign on it. Perhaps yeah. also a fence that says, "Don't come on my lawn." Right, right. but but yeah. then the the counter argument to that is then that's an opportunity for someone to say to no, make a lawn like, that says, "I w I want you to to come on my lawn," well, and and yeah. here's you know enjoy well, the grass. If you guys actually believe that that, that 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 that's the case, then there should be no argument today because those. Companies should emerge even if there is the DMCA. The DMCA is not an obligation to right. put anti-circumvention. It's, it's merely a right to do it. Right, right, but that's what I'm saying is that the DMCA provides kind of, oh, cool, we, already, we don't even need to put the fence up. We have like government to tell us them to make the fence for us or to put the sign up for us. No, but uh, do you really think that's the barrier? Like the, the making the anti-circumvention measure is, uh, you know, Forcing them to do it. Well, that, it's that it's not even. It, it's. It, I think it, to some extent it goes beyond that because when you have when you're using the DMCA as the process by which you do this, whether or not the company wants it, you've created a legal liability for anyone who then does go and 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 you sure. know, tinker with the mm -hmm. device, right? But for most of the things that we've been discussing with Kyle, it's clear the companies want it. John Deere wants it. These phones, AT&T wants it. T-Mobile wants it. They all want it, right? It's not like it's this accidental thing where it's yeah. like, they're just so happy. I have a refrigerator. My refrigerator manufacturer doesn't care whether I hack into the, uh, the EEPROM or something, right? But then, you know, someone happens to do it. And then actually... Apple is a good example here where Apple actually decided that they don't want it. 
Uh, for a while, they were fighting the jailbreaking exemption, and now they've decided that they, they don't oppose the jailbreaking exemption for phones or tablets. Uh, and and so, so they, they had both the legal and the technological, and then once once the first cell phone jailbreaking exemption was passed and they realized, eh, this isn't really hurting us, uh, they stopped fighting it legally and they just they just play the – they build the fence higher. They do, they do the technological <laughs> side, but they don't, uh, they don't fight it legally anymore. I mean, they basically demonstrated that there actually is a market for a walled garden, and, and the reason there is is because a walled garden is safe. <laughs> There's a wall around it. There's no malware in the Apple store, whereas all these other – Unlock stores, you really don't know what you're getting. And most people you know, don't have the uh, courage to go and like, crack their phone and worry about malware and things like that. And so that's right, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean we shouldn't allow the people who, who do know what they're doing and know that they can oh, you know, sure. go right. and do yeah. those things safely to, to go out and do that. But well, I think that's what Apple has mm -hmm. basically taken the stance of doing, right? They're right. like, uh, I mean, I've, I've used a jailbroken phone before and it's not as good of an experience as <laughs> Apple's walled garden. It is really nice, right? So, um, so that's great. I mean, I, I didn't know that Apple wasn't. Yeah, they. Going they after them I, I know that initially they were they were opposing the kind of first jailbreaking exemption, but once sure. it got approved, they haven't uh, they haven't opposed it since. And if you look at the folks who were involved in the process, you know, Apple and Samsung, I don't think were involved in any of the exemptions this time, hmm. which is fascinating because uh, four out of the exemptions are directly related to, to the. Uh, well, they also can rest on. The, I mean, the fact that. Being playing within the Apple ecosystem, you have a much better product experience than the the jailbroken yeah. one, right? So, yeah. and maybe that's what someone like a John Deere is afraid of: is that they're not able to maintain that level of quality that right. that beats the open market, maybe. So on the, on another kind of tangential copyright tinkering issue is is uh, availability of kind of the information that people need to be able to repair things. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, if you, if you take a circuit board of a phone, in order to be able to repair, say, a resistor on the phone, you need access to the circuit schematic that tells you what the, the resistor value is of that. And if you Google around, you can find these. If you search for iPhone schematic, mm -hmm. uh, you'll find the Foxconn schematic that was leaked out of the factory. The, the repair shops are using these where they can get them. Um, and there have been a number of state-level laws that have been introduced to require manufacturers share that information with the repair shops. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the you know, Apple is uh, amongst others are opposing this, but this is kind of interesting because it's, mm. it, it's at some level when you get down to the electronics, freedom to tinker is not just the ability to uh, to well the, the technical ability to do it, it, it is requisite on access to information. Yeah, and I mean there have been similar things with automobiles as well, where trying to get access to like you know the the, the computer codes and things like that, and you know whether or right. not those should be made available. I mean, and there's a long history of legislation that requires car manufacturers share that information with local mechanics, right. and that is why you have local car repair shops that are independent of the, of the dealers. If, if we hadn't passed right-to-repair laws several times over, uh, since the 70s, there wouldn't be local mechanics. Right. Right. Which, is, by the way, that's why there aren't local camera repair shops. All the camera repair shops in the U.S. went out of business in the last five years. There are 13 left. That's actually really wow. interesting. Nikon, about three years ago, Nikon decided that they were going to cut off access to service parts and information to all of their, their huh. they had thousands of independent authorized service centers. They cut them all off. They, they collapsed it down to 13. Um, the town that I grew up in, uh, in Oregon, very picturesque place, lots of outdoor folks. When I was growing up, there were three camera stores. Now there are zero. <laughs> it's, it's funny that Nikon oh. is the one, because I, I actually had a Nikon camera that... Me too. Uh, that that broke right after I got it, and the only thing I could do was send it back to them. Right. Um, and and they were a 
pain about it. <laughs> right. Well, and this is when I, we talk about freedom to tinker. It, it's, yeah. it's really the freedom to be able to do what we need to with our things. And it's a question of, you know, it, is this top-down environment that manufacturer creates uh, the best thing for the economy, the best thing for society? And I don't think that it is. Yeah. Uh, any, any monolithic system is going to be less efficient than a more distributed system. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, it, there's something, there's just something, I mean, I didn't realize that there was this freedom to repair um, history, but it, there's just something that feels weird to legislate the dissemination of information about like a, like a circuit board schematic, for example, or like, I think it's, it should be in like the best interest of a manufacturer, but I guess I can see now with what you're saying, with, with the, if, if you don't want to have authorized repair sensors, then you won't have any independent there, there won't be anyone yeah. out there yeah and this has been a challenge with tv repair yeah it's interesting the history of this goes back to the clean air act which was passed in the 70s and the epa told manufacturers that they had to make the information available to the repair shops to be able to maintain the emission system which makes a lot of sense the emission system can go out of calibration you could have a catalytic converter fail you have to have the technical information and know how to repair that correctly right so they, they, they said, make the information available, and then there's mm -hmm. a series of laws that have been updated since then. It's kind of the same thing with electronics. You need a local repair shop to be able to repair your Nikon camera because there's a huge amount of energy that goes into manufacturing that camera. For a cell phone, it's over 500 pounds of raw material that goes into manufacturing a phone. And the vast majority of the electricity that will be used over the lifetime of that phone was in the manufacturing phase. It's, most of it is, is, is in China where, where they're using coal power. So if you look at what is the clean air impact of a cell phone, it's all in manufacturing. You want to amortize that over the life of the phone. So, so why, I guess, why does the market fail here? Is it because Nikon, like the manufacturer holds too much power, like a monopolistic power? Yeah, so with, with, with Nikon, part of the challenge is around parts, but it's also information is really key because the repair technician doesn't have access to the, it's really the complexity of the product. So you take a modern SLR, there's a thousand components inside it. And, and that SLR is different from, from a Sony, from everything else. So the, the proliferation of models and the complexity of the devices mm -hmm. means that the repair technician needs to be a specialist on every single one. And, and you basically have to reverse engineer the product in the course of repairing it, as opposed to having the, the you know, service manual, which, which was, you know, is going to be very specific to each one. So what we've been doing at iFixit over the years has been reverse engineering all of those manufacturer service manuals in a public domain sort of space. And we've been very effective with the products that we've been able to get our hands on. We have over 15,000 repair guides on iFixit, but that is a drop in the bucket compared right. to how many products there are and out there. How, how, do, how do the companies react to the fact that you have those on the site? Some of them are very positive. Uh, we work with, like, some manufacturers will work with us. They'll have us write mm -hmm. the manual. Like, Patagonia worked with us and trained us how to, how to repair their products. Fairphone is a cell phone manufacturer that was really excited, and they include the repair manual on the phone. Mm. Other folks like Apple probably prefer that we weren't doing it. You know, I think one of the reasons um, repair is, 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 is you don't see you know a bunch of cell phone repair shops around here, whereas you do see them in Asia. You see them in India. When I was in India, there's a lot of uh, cell phone repair shops. I think one of the mm -hmm. reasons you don't see them in the United States is because uh, given the high cost of labor here, a lot of times a replacement, you know, de novo replacement would actually be cheaper than paying someone the you know for their time and labor to actually do a replacement there's there's only a few things on a cell phone that i think 
um, you can replace like such as the screen perhaps and, and the battery yeah. uh, that it's economical to replace as opposed to just paying for the cost of a new phone, perhaps a cheaper phone, right? Yeah, so I'd say that's the perception, but I think that's an urban myth. Uh, if you look at how much money we're paying for phones these days, uh, it's worth a lot of time to get in and repair these things. Hmm. I would argue that the reason that there's a lot more repair shops in Asia rather than here comes down to copyright law. Uh, they're a, a lot less respectful of permissions around access to these schematics there. Uh, and I know I was in Delhi, and I was like, okay, who's repairing the HTCs? And I walked around, and it turned out it was the one guy who had access to the HTC service manuals he, and schematics. He was the one everybody was taking all their HTCs to to get fixed. Huh. And, yeah, that phone wouldn't be fixed here, but if you could get me that schematic to a shop here, they absolutely could fix it, and they could make a lot of money doing it. Hmm. Those phones are worth six hundred bucks. The boards are worth three, four hundred dollars each. You can spend a lot of time repairing a four hundred dollar board. Hmm. Uh, and we actually, we just posted uh, a couple weeks ago. I did a, a micro soldering repair. I'm here in in our repair workshop, and I have our microscope here, and the oscilloscopes, and soldering irons, and our ultrasonic cleaners. And we're doing extraordinarily small repairs. I swapped out. There was a I had an iPad uh, board that wasn't working. And there was a power filter on the board that had failed and it burned out. The power filter is about a 20th the size of a grain of rice. Uh, it's a effectively free component, you know, a one cent component. And that was the difference between the whole board working and not. Uh, it took me about half an hour to swap it out. Hmm. How, how did so, you diagnose that that was a problem? Yeah, so in this case, if, with the microscope, it was vis a visibly burned out component. So I was able to identify that that was the component, but then I had to look up on the schematic and figure out what the value of it was, and I realized in this case it looks just like a resistor or capacitor, so I had to find out that it was a power filter and then realize, okay, in this case I don't actually need a power filter in that situation. It's just cleaning up the signal. So I actually just jumped it and I replaced that power filter with a copper wire. But I wouldn't have known that without access to the schematic. Right. So why does Apple put a power filter there? That's strange. If, if a copper wire, if you could just jump it. Sure. So there's a difference between designing a product the perfect way that you're going to, run, you know, to <laughs> yeah. sell millions of and, and fixing a thing that is broken. Right, right. And getting it just to work again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we kind of went into this in the repair. Some things, if you look at it like a resistor, okay, it's a, it's a 0.25 ohm resistor. Okay, I can go and get another of those. Or I can pull it off of a donor board or something. But but in other situations, you're going to say, look, you know, it's a it's a one power filter. It's going to be okay. I'm I'm repairing this 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 unit. It might not be quite up to factory spec, but it'll be good enough to work. Yeah, and and I mean, just this whole discussion also sort of brings up another point related to this whole, you know, freedom to tinker concept, which is you know this idea of actually understanding the devices around us. Um, is actually pretty important and, and kind of useful. And, uh, you know, I, in some sense, much more so than in the past because so much, uh, you know, almost everything around us is is our devices, electronic devices and computerized right. devices. And yet for so many people, they're complete just black boxes and they're, you know, right. they're magic. Um, and Society is better when people understand how things work, when yeah. people understand what goes into, into things. Well, it's not We're that, able I mean, to make more yeah. informed decisions. Yeah, 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 I think it's that. It's, it's when you understand you know, why, why it's not magic and, and why it works, you actually understand a lot of other things and, and the decisions that you make around those things will be much better and much more reasonable. You know, it, it, it's worrisome when people think of things as, as pure magic because right. 
Well, you end up with what happened in Dallas with Ahmed, the the boy that was trying to make a clock. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, th- there were there were there was a racism issue there, but the fear that was underlying yeah. that was a fear of electronics. Like, oh, it's a circuit board that must be a bomb. Well, right. that, maybe bomb is the only circuit board they've ever seen in their life because they've never <laughs> taken anything apart. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. It, I mean, it's it's a challenging thing, and and I I do think it's it is a little bit. Um, it is, you know, I, I, I sort of struggle with the, the, you know, not, not feeling like a, you know, like a old folky about like, you know, back in my day, <laughs> uh, you know, where, you know, you could take apart a car and actually understand what it is. Whereas today it's certainly more challenging just because like, you know, the, the computerized aspect of uh, aspect of everything certainly makes it different and more challenging. It's, it's not, it's, it's not different. Just, it's different, right? It's, so, you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's different. It might, it may be more challenging in some ways and, and perhaps less challenging in other ways and, and perhaps more interesting and, and yeah. offer a lot more opportunities for people who can really dig in and understand the, the computerized and electronic components, um, that, you know, and that allows them to, to really, you know, not just get a feel for these things, but understand what they do and, and think about kind of what comes next and, and you know, what, what they can build, um, you know, right. based on what they know. Well, and we see repair as a, as a gateway drug to engineering. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If, you, if you talk to any engineer, you know, how did you get started? What did you do as a kid? Oh, I started taking things apart. I remember right. my grandfather would take us down to Goodwill and we'd buy old radios and we'd take them apart just to figure out, like, what's inside these things. Yeah, and then that taking it apart is the first step to putting them back together, right? So, right, yeah, like that's definitely what I did when I was a kid. But, um, but I, but I feel like some, you know, I, I really maybe I'm being optimistic here in terms of believing or hoping that like a market-based force here will <laughs> will, will prevail. Like, like you know, for example, like I was at a great like both Ford and Audi. Like I've been to events that they had um, where they encouraged you know us to work on their their. their their cars and trying to figure out, you know, there was two hack days that I was basically a part of and they were like, Hey, you know, here's the car, here's the interfaces to, to the, 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 uh, the APIs on the cars themselves. And can you, can you figure anything out? And I would like to think that given the choice or, or not even just given the choice, but given these two platforms, you know, this one platform that you can tinker on. And then another, you said like Volvo before was, has a very closed plat- closed approach. I would, li- I would like to think that, the open ecosystems will prevail, right? Um, and it I doesn't think that need to be legislated, over time. right? And I mean, it's really a question of are we going to be open sourcing you know, everything? Well, well we, we kind of joke that I fix it as an open source hardware company. Yeah. We don't make any hardware, we just open source everybody else's <laughs> hardware. <laughs> uh, and it's either for them or to them, depending right, on, right. on what their perspective is. Uh, and, and what's kind of happening is that we're, we're very successfully breaking open the very popular devices. So there will always be an open source service manual for the iPad, mm. but for the you know cheap Android tablet that you bought, there might not be. Um, and I'm a little bit concerned that it leads to the world of the haves and the have-nots, where the people that buy the more expensive, more popular devices uh, are going to have access to this information, and everybody else is going to be left behind. But well, that assumes that the cheap guys don't just give you the manuals to right. put online, and, and they may, you know. Well, we're hoping that we can start talking them into doing it. We haven't we haven't seen it much yet, but it would be certainly a way for them to increase market share. Yeah, and that that would be a like a fantastic kind of move for those smaller guys, the the non market leaders to kind of show yeah. like, hey, like buy our hardware. Here's our schematic. Tinker on it. Like, I think the the you know the Raspberry yeah. Pi community is is very vibrant. Um, you know, I think that that would kind of show 
to the rest of the market that being closed has disadvantages. Yeah, but you, right. you still have to convince people of that. And, and you know, right. uh, for a lot of people, certainly the natural inclination is to, you know, to hoard information and to keep things closed, even though, you know, we all know that that generally is probably going to make less sense, but but it is the natural yeah. inclination. That, yeah. that said, I'm surrounded by Apple hardware. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the more that we can show that there is a environmental and social benefit to repurposing these things. You know, you, you take something like a cell phone. It's a general purpose device. There's a lot of things that can be done with it after yeah. it's not useful as a cell phone anymore. Uh, there's an environmental group that is taking old cell phones and setting up hundreds of them distributed in the rainforest in Sumatra hmm. and using them as detectors for illegal mining or illegal logging. So they, they have, they're using the microphone and they set up a mesh network. And then if they detect the sound of a chainsaw, then it phones home and they're able to send somebody out to do something about it. And this is something that the manufacturer had no idea that right. the phone would ever be repurposed as this. But it is a net good for society. It makes these phones affordable. You're able to you know, turn a product where you've already spent the material value of manufacturing the thing and use it for something else. How do they power it, by the way? Uh, they're using solar panels. They have like a grid of like six that's, solar that's panels awesome. on each one. But if anything, it, it actually increases the resale or the kind of residual value of right. old hardware, right? So right. yeah, which is a good thing for manufacturers as well. It's it's interesting if you look back in the in the 30s and 40s, Ford and GM tried to make it illegal to resell used vehicles. Yeah. Wow, I did not which, know that. I mean, think about how different the world would be if if that was the case. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it turned out that we said, no, you can't do that. And, and yes, selling used cars is a very good thing net for society. Yeah, and, and, and there's always, like, with, with all sorts of things, people have always freaked out about used stuff. I mean, it still comes out with, like, used books and used video games. And there have been study after study that show, like, if you allow for a, a secondary market, it increases the value of the primary market, which, right. you know, is pretty basic economics and yet yeah. again i mean it's one of these things that you still have you know the the um you know the originators of the products still freak out about it and they still worry about you know being undercut by their own product in some sense because they're not thinking through the secondary effects of what they're what they're saying and i think that that's you know i think that's the case in a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today it's just, mm -hmm. you know, if people could actually understand all of these secondary and indirect effects, yeah. like there are so many benefits to being open, to sharing that information, to allowing this kind of tinkering, and yet we just have this natural inclination towards, you know, hoarding information and, and holding onto it and thinking that that gives you some sort of market advantage instead. And so, I mean... You know, it, it's it's sort of this ongoing struggle. I mean, it's the struggle of that we've been seeing in the innovation field for a very long time. And and I, uh, you know, I and don't you, think you it's think going by away. now people would have learned a lesson. By yeah, but those these are the kinds of lessons that never seem to fully get learned, right? Yeah. Yeah. Until you start passing right to repair laws, uh, and, <laughs> and the, you, you, know, you institutionalize it, which has been very, very successful in the automotive yeah. space, and, and we need to start applying that lesson, uh, and how effective it's been at building local economies. You think about you know, a small American town, how many shops are there in the town, right? You've got a small grocer, and a car mechanic, and a post office, and that's it. But yeah. wh and why couldn't there be a, an electronics repair guy there as well? Yeah, yeah. And a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. All right. So I, I know we're, we're kind of running out of time. So, um, Kyle, I want to go to you for sort of final thoughts on, on kind of this topic of, of freedom to tinker and, and the value of permissionless innovation. So, so send us out on a high note. <laughs> 
Well, I would say it's it's useful to think of of the ecosystem like you think about a tree. A tree is a manufacturing system. It's 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 linear and it's very good at making lots of leaves. Uh, and the way that that natural systems work is you have a, a distributed ecosystem of ants and microorganisms that are recycling and reprocessing those nutrients and then turning them back in and building the entire ecosystem that is the forest. Uh, and when manufacturers say, no, we're going to make leaves and we're going to build poison into them so nobody else can do anything with them ever, <laughs> uh, it's, it's bad for the forest and it's bad for them in the long run. Yeah. Well, that, that is a great closing line. And with that, thank you very much, Kyle, for joining us for, for the second week in a row. Uh, we really appreciated it. We will certainly have you back on again in the future. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening and for joining us. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, Hey, Kyle. this was a blast. Thanks. 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 Bye. To grab a shovel and dig up the tack